but I want to. I want to make sure I got it in there. When uh, when did you first throw a spitball? What uh, was the occasion? And why and how and all of that? Well, it's about 1964, and I was right here in New York. And six to two, I was a rookie, and I was three and one. And six to three, I was one and six. So I was on the way back to the farm, and at yeah. that time we didn't have trackers, and we followed the mule. So uh, I was the 11th man on a 10-man pitching staff. So I was in serious trouble. You needed to do something quick. Yeah. yeah. So we have a doubleheader against the Mets in the first game we win, and the second game uh, is like the uh, 13th, uh, 12th or 13th inning, and, and I'm the last guy down there. The catcher doesn't want warm me up, you know. I had one of the cops warm me up in the bullpen. <laughs> That's how bad I was. And um, so Tom Haller, who is the general manager for the San Francisco Giants, and I a good friend and a very fine catcher, comes out and says, uh, I think it's time for you to bring everything you got out. Yeah. And I, I thought he meant this pitch. You know, I got a habit of doing this. See, I rubbed all the hair off my head with doing that. And uh, it was hot that day, so I put a lot of grease on my hair. And it made the ball do funny things, so uh, I kept doing the same old thing for years. Yeah. Now, you, you started out just a little oil from your hair. What else can you Well, at first, until uh, 1968, you could go to your mouth. Mm -hmm. And then you could wipe off like this, but see, you never touch, as the camera can see, you never touch those fingers. Yeah. And you get the ball in the glove and you put it on there. And that's all you need to really make it. What right. does it actually do when you, once you've loaded one up? Okay, I, uh, you got a baseball in there. You have a baseball right here. All right. Now, later you, you ended up with Vaseline, didn't you? Right, because you couldn't go to your mouth on the dirt part of the mouth. Yeah, okay. But so, where would you uh, keep the Vaseline? All over. <laughs> okay, here's, a, here's a glove. Now, right. just show me where it would be hidden. Uh, I never put it in my glove because the umpire, the first thing he'd want to see is your glove yeah. when he came out. The next thing is your hat. So I never put it on those two places. I just put it all over my face. Really? Yeah. And they wouldn't detect it at all? Not because I sweat a whole lot. Yeah. Now, why is this pitch illegal? Well, uh, the rule committee is afraid that uh, the young kids that throw so hard can't control it. Mm -hmm. And see, all right, if you throw a fastball, it'll rotate this way upward. Now, if your fingers happen to get wet and you put it on a slick part of the ball, well, it'll slip over and come off your thumb last and go downward. I see. And it'll come right in and just fall right off the table like that. So it, when it's coming to you, it appears to be what kind of a pitch? A fastball? fastball. And then suddenly it just... A fastball with no rotation. See, the hitter has to pick up the rotation of the ball tell it from a fastball or breaking ball. Yeah. But the, uh, the grease ball, the spitball has no rotation. Yeah. Now, when you were with Seattle, the one year, was it 81, the team had the worst uh, earned run average in the league. And then, uh, no, I guess after you joined the, the team the next year, mm -hmm. they went from the worst ERA to the second best in the league. Now, were you teaching everybody on the staff the spitball? They did real good, didn't they? Yeah. Led <laughs> <laughs> uh, the league in strikeouts that year, too. Is that right? Yeah. Now, were, you, were you tutoring the folks on that? Oh, we just talked about it. <laughs> uh, is there anybody who, could, who was a good spitball hitter? Yeah, most of your low ball hitters, a guy like, say, Oscar Gamble, who uh, is strictly a low ball uh -huh. hitter, uh, is very good at that. Yeah. A guy like Pete Rose, who doesn't overswing, uh, you know, just makes contact, is, is a good one. Now, who, now that you're out of the, out of baseball, who is now a good spitball uh, pitcher? <laughs> <laughs> I might have interviewed him sometime. <laughs> but it's, uh, I'd say it's probably 25 or 30 to try to throw it. Uh-huh. 
But, uh, and they don't need it as much as uh, a lot of people did. You know what? She tried to and a good secret pitch. I don't know what he put on it, but uh-huh. it's a good one. <laughs> and uh, I just watched those guys. If he went and tugged at his belt, that's what Drysdale saying. He's tugging his belt. And the players come back. They strike out. They come back. Says, Every time he gets his belt, he's got it. He's got it on his belt. And then uh, I saw Burnett pitch, Lou Burnett. Yeah. And he went to his hat. Every time he touched a hat, they call time and tell the umpire, check the ball. So I started with the hat. And uh, it seemed to work. It upset the hitter. So I continue to do it. I know when I uh, when I won 15 in a row in 1974 and uh, tied the record in the American League, uh, I just went to the head. I never used anything. No kidding. Ran on my own. Yeah. 16th game, I used something and got beat. <laughs> <laughs> the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? What's cracking? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers... And their stories. What's juicy, Seamheads? Want to welcome everyone in this week. From my loyal OGs to the pod surfer who happened to hop on this barrel. Here I am, another week, in this dead void of the offseason. Holding it down, watching the hot stove heat up. I mean, it's good to see that stove putting off some heat in December this year. After a few slow off-seasons the last couple years. Uh, We still have the WBC coming in March. MLB, MLB has a new lottery system for the draft now, and the Pittsburgh Pirates have earned the first pick. Aaron Judge was re-signed by the Yankees since the last show. With uh, There's still plenty of very good ballplayers still out there up for grabs. And I, for one, I'm glad to see Judge where he belongs, even though he uh, moyed us my beloved Orioles pitching. Uh, but look, he's a Yankee, for better or worse, and it looks like he will be there for the rest of his career. As far as all seasons go, this one has been fairly exciting, and thank God for that after some slow rollers we've had you know, these in these last few off-seasons. As for BKP, the first season is winding down with only three stories left here in 2022. I have the 2023 schedule already filled out and ready to go. 
uh, as I feel like I have some great stories lined up on tap for next year, and I can't wait to share those with you. Backwards K Pod is available on all platforms wherever you listen to your pods, or you can find all my shows on my website, diamondsnakejake.poppy.com, and my vaults of archives. I will never charge you a penny for the content, no Patreon, no crowdsourcing, and when I do a bonus show, I give them to my audience for free. However, I do take five-star donations and finally written reviews of how awesome I am. If you're on a platform like Apple or Spotify, please rate and review me as you see fit. I am scared. These ratings and reviews, they keep the show viable, enables BKP to show up in more search engines towards the top, and it helps put food on my family's table. I don't take myself very serious, but I do take the work here seriously. I'm in it 365 days, 24-7, 52 weeks a year. I do not take time off, and I will never, never forsake my hardcore Seamhead disciples. Together, we're going to celebrate the history of baseball through indelible stories, and we shall overcome this dead void together, brothers and sisters. Get on my back, folks. I will carry you to the land of milk and honey, good brothers and sisters. I'm coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Wade Boggs, baby. If you want to get a hold of me on the show, you can always find me on Facebook at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network group page or on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. If you want to email me, uh, you can go to backwardskpod at gmail.com, and that's the way to go there. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. Seek, and ye shall find. In fact, let me see here. I got an email from Travis in Wisconsin, loyal Seaman listener. He says, I had no idea that the White Sox were so close to moving to Florida. That was very interesting to learn. And also, about the parks that have corporate names, imagine how the fans would have reacted if Yankee Stadium became CBS Stadium when they owned the team. Okay. So, first things first. Uh, just ill. Ill, okay? I loathe corporate names. They almost never last. I mean, what is this? Oracle Park? They're on like that third name already, right? The embarrassment of Enron to now Minute Maid Park. Sounds delicious. Edison International. That lasted a whole two years or so. Not a few of them last. Now, a few of them have been lasting lately. PNC, Miller, Petco. But still, ew. It's not... Very retro to have a corporate name on the side of your retro crib. You feel me? So, CBS Stadium, you ask me? The house that the Tiffany Network built? I don't think so, bro. And to the first part of your message, I had no idea about the possibility of the Sox moving to Tampa St. Pete as well. Somewhere there is an alternate earth out there with the Sox playing in Tampa and the Rays on the south side of the Chai. Now, that's a butterfly effect moment that should give us all pause. And I thought it was crazy to think about those crazy Tampa baseball fans waiting on pins and needles for midnight to come, only to have the rug pulled out from under them at 12.03. Yeah, three minutes past the deadline. That's how Chicago gets down, baby. It's just a crazy story. And look, here's the silver lining to the whole GRF dilemma. No matter who doesn't like that park, whether it's critics or fans or whomever, it still, it still blows the trap away. That could have been their home, and I think the majority of the audience has a sense what I think about 
Trump can't feel. The only thing worse than a corporate name slapped on the side of a baseball cathedral is for the ball to still be in play when it bounces off a stadium structure. You smell me? So it could have been a lot worse than uh, guaranteed right field, South Chicago. You know, the, 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 or, you know, the White Sox. The White Sox could have been playing down in the Trump, which is way worse than the new Comiskey. So, with that being said, I see the catcher is coming down. Time to call on the board. As we get this train rolling once again with this week's topic. And this week, folks... We're going to be examining the life and times of the one and only, the recently lost, Gaylord Perry. And without a shadow of a doubt, Mr. Perry was one of the premier pitchers of his generation, winning 314 games, uh, striking out 3,534 batters. But, of course, his legacy rests mainly as him being the last great spitball hurler, which, let's be honest... Uh, befuddled batters, humiliated umpires, pissed off opposing managers for two decades. But for anyone who thinks that was the only reason for his success, you would be wrong. He was a brilliant pitcher with a vast repertoire, making uh, his spitter just another thing to sit into the opposing batter's cerebellum while in the box. Of course, in post-game interviews, Gaylord, who always had his uh, this kind of like grandfatherly appeal to him, uh, you know, much like Phil Necro, he would sheeplessly deny any wrongdoing with a sly grin like a magician dying to tell you how he did it. But, you know, with the tight-lipped discipline of a, a, you know, a mafioso. During Perry's career, the rules governing the enforcement of the spitter were changed twice because of him. And the umpires were given explicit directives to watch Gaylord like a hawk. He was truly worth the price of admission, folks. When he pitched... He was the story. All eyes were on him. Uh, where is the grease today? Why can't the umpires find it? The ball is clearly loaded. And of course, the one question that would most be asked is, did you just see the movement on that pitch right there? All the while, Perry is a grinning and a dealing. And he wants reason. The only time the stadium was quiet when he pitched was when he was pitching poorly. As a general rule, the louder the venue, the better he was usually pitching. And no, Perry did not invent the spitter, of course, nor was he the only one to use it with success during the 60s and 70s. Very good pitchers like Phil Regan, Bill Singer, Jim Maloney, they used the greaser as a part of their arsenal, but no one threw it with the consistency and the longevity of Gaylord Perry. During those years, Gaylord's denials became an all-too-familiar and humorous part of his profile. During the 1971 playoffs, a reporter asked Gaylord's five-year-old daughter, Does your daddy throw a grease ball? And without missing a beat, little Allison Perry looked the interviewer in his eye and tells him point blank, My daddy throws a hard slider. Thank you very much. Gaylord Jackson Perry. He was born on September 15, 1938 to Evan and Ruby Perry in Williamston, North Carolina. Gaylord's older brother James, or Jim, as most of us in the baseball universe recognized him. He also had a long and successful Major League Baseball career. Gaylord also had a younger sister named Carolyn to round out the trio. And his father, Evan, was quite the athlete in his day as he excelled in baseball and football. 
And as a young man, Evan had to turn down a minor league contract offer because his family, who were farmers before him, they could not afford to let him leave the farm. Evan and his wife Ruby were tenant farmers. They had a 25-acre plot of land where they grew tobacco, corn, peanuts. They raised some animals. And they would have to share half of their profits with the landlord. At the age of seven, he and his brother Jim were taught how to plow the fields with a mule. But the Perry's boys, you know, they were much luckier than most of the other uh, farmers' sons, you know, in the, in the area. Their father loved baseball. And maybe he always thought about what he gave up for his family needs as a young man. Maybe he never wanted his sons to have to make that choice. But whatever it was, Evan would always let his sons pursue baseball. And he gave the boys all the practical time needed as long as the chores were done. As a kid out on that farm, Gaylord used to dream about being a gunslinging cowboy. And that was his very first dream job. Jim... Gaylord and their father, they began playing ball together on their lunch break. And eventually, the three would play on the same semi-pro local baseball team. Uh, Gaylord would go on to attend Williamson High School, where he led it in football, basketball, and baseball. On the gridiron, he was a beast, playing both offensive and defensive end as a sophomore and junior. Uh, he would give up that sport to avoid injury to his uh, pitching arm, and he focused solely on baseball. Well, not solely, but... He did give up football. On the parquet hardwoods, he and Jim both standing in at 6-3. They led the school to the state finals in Gaylord's freshman year. And four years of high school baseball for Williamston, uh, basketball for Williamston, Gaylord averaged nearly 30 points and 20 boards per game. He led the school to a 94-8 record during his high school career, and he turned down literally dozens, as in more than one dozen scholarship offers. But Gaylord's true love was baseball. His older brother was a stud on the mound, and Gaylord enjoyed watching his hero close up all those games while playing third base. Now, near the end of Gaylord's freshman year, the coach began swapping the parries and double switches to give Jim's arm a rest. Williamson would go on to win the North Carolina State High School base- baseball title with Gaylord and Jim hurling back-to-back shutouts. After three more impressive high school seasons, and after going 33-5, and five, Gaylord decides he's ready for the pros. So, the local officials and Williamston, they set up an exhibition game against ex-big big leaguer Tommy Byrne to showcase Gaylord's talent for MLB scouts. Gaylord dominated the contest, picking up the 5-1 win, and at one point, he struck out 17 consecutive batters. Gaylord was hoping Cleveland would sign him so he could be with his brother, who had already signed with the Tribe. Cleveland would drop out of the bidding, and Gaylord would sign with the San Francisco Giants for a $60,000 bonus and a three-year minor league deal. The brothers would eventually pitch together together with the Tribe down the road, and uh, Gaylord, he gave half of of this bonus that he got from the Giants to his parents, and that got them out of debt for the very first time in their lives and he put the rest of that cash in the bank. Now, side note here. That signing bonus would put Gaylord in a little bit of hot water with the IRS. Since he and his father had split the bonus, both men paid taxes on the $30,000. However, in 1961, the government goes after Gaylord for uh, you know the remainder of the full share of the tax bill plus penalties. So, 
Here's Gaylord toiling in the uh, Gaylord toiling in the miners, traveling by bus to every backwater town, making a minor league salary. He can't pay the IRS back what they want off of what he's making. So he goes to the Giants and they actually give him a loan that he pays back when he beats the government in a settlement several years later. The Giants sent the 20-year-old to St. Cloud, Minnesota to play in the Class C Northern League. Along with Matty Alou and Bob Bowen, the trio led the team to a pennant, although they lost in the playoffs. Gaylord finished 9-5 with a 2.29 ERA, second in the league, only to Bo Belinsky playing for Aberdeen. His second season of Pro Bowl, it's uh, Pro Ball, and sees Gaylord in the Double A Texas League, playing for the Corpus Christi Giants, where for the first time in his life he, he struggles as he limps to the finish with a ten and eleven record and a four point zero five ERA. Early in his high school years, Gaylord took a fancy to a girl named Blanche Manning, the star of the girls' high school basketball team. While Gaylord was playing for the boys' hoop team, the two would often find themselves traveling together on road trips for doubleheaders, and that gave Gaylord ample time to court her. Blanche would go on to play for Duke University while Gaylord was a senior in high school, and the two would marry December 26, 1959. So now with his personal life on solid footing and with Blanche in his corner, Gaylord returns to the Texas lead, but the season is snakebitten, as the team, now called the Rio Grande Valley Giants, they won the pennant, but Perry finishes 9-13 with a 2.83 ERA. For the 1961 season, the Giants moved him up to Triple A Tacoma, the PCL, one step away from the show. He sets the tone with two five-hit shutouts to open the season, and he never looks back. He goes 16-10 and 10 with a 2.55 ERA at Triple H Tacoma. His win total tied him for the league lead, and his ERA was third best. At the end of the season, he is placed on the 40-man roster for the very first time. A strong showing in spring training camp in 1962. Lands Gaylord Perry a spot on the Giants roster and a role as the 10th man on the staff. You know, as like this spot starter, bullpen guy. Perry would actually say he was the 11th pitcher on a 10-man staff. His first assignment was to start the fifth game of the season, but he left in the third with the score tied 4-4. He picked up his first victory on April 25th when he threw five innings in a 5-2 victory versus the Pirates. On April 30th, he would again victimize the Buccos with a four-hit victory. And the success would be fleeting, though, as Gaylord began to struggle with his playing time becoming more and more sporadic. After two months of mediocre ball and a 6.25 ERA to boot, Perry was sent back to Tacoma on June 11th. And Gaylord had a strong second half in the PCL. He finished 10-7 and seven with them with a 2.48 ERA. He quickly became one of the favorites of Giants legend and farm director Carl Hubble, who was always in his ear, telling him to trust that blazing fastball and throw it more frequently for strikes. By the end of the 62 PCL season, Gaylord is called back to the big club in San Francisco, smack dab in the middle of a pennant race. He was used rather sparingly those last few weeks, but... He was called into the action in the bottom of the ninth inning in the second game of a best-of-three playoff series versus those hated Dodgers. And this would decide the NL pennant. So, here's what happened. 
The situation is this. It's 7-7, bottom of the 9-2-1, nobody out. Giants manager tells Gaylord, look, dude, this batter, Daryl Spencer, he's going to bunt. I promise you, he's going to fucking bunt. Now, when he does that, field the ball and throw the third to get more wills on the force, who's the lead runner. And just as Dark predicted, Spencer drops the bunt right back to Gaylord, and inexplicably... Perry decides that Willis would beat his throw to third and slings the ball over to first to get the safe out. Now, Willis would score the winning run two batters later, although the Giants would snatch that pennant with a rubber match victory in Game 3. But after that Game 2 loss, Dark, well, he was seated with anger, and he threw the youngster under the bus. He complained to the writers about Gaylord's brain fart. Gaylord was not eligible to pitch in the World Series as he was let off the roster. And which San Francisco lost to the Giant uh, to the Yankees in seven games. With his half share of the World Series bonus in hand, Gaylord put down a payment on a farm near his family's home. Nineteen sixty three was a disaster. As he was uh, Gaylord was sporadically called out of the bullpen and in seventy six innings. Pitched, he went 1-6 with a 4.03 ERA. He was sent back to Tacoma and was recalled after one start when Giants pitcher Jim Duffalo badly lacerated his finger. The only thing that salvaged Gaylord Perry's uh, 1963 baseball experience was a strong showing in the Dominican Republic Winter Ball League with teammates uh, the Alou brothers, Philippe, Matty, and Jesus, and Juan Marichal, the pitcher. After a rocky start in the Dominican Republic Winter League ball, uh, he would go on to lead the, that league in strikeouts. And that winter, the Giants and the Milwaukee Braves pull off a six-player trade. The Giants send Philippe Lou, catcher Ed Bailey, pitcher Billy Hall, and infielder Ernie Bauman to Milwaukee for catcher Del Crandall and pitchers Bob Henley and Bob Shaw. And even though Gaylord is at the bottom of the proverbial barrel of this fucking staff, and you know, adding more arms to the staff, it's going to put Gaylord in a vulnerable position. This trade would wind up being the greatest thing that ever happened to his career. And the reason for that is because Bob Shaw, one of the guys that came over to San Francisco from Milwaukee, he threw one hell of a spitball. Uh, although the spitball and shine balls have been formally outlawed in the 1920s, there was a grandfather clause for a few ball players to continue throwing that pitch until the re- retirement. In fact, if you remember uh, in the Death of Ray Chapman show here at Backwards K-Pod, Carl Mays, the pitcher who unfortunately threw that faithful pitch that day, was a shine ball pitcher who had the grandfather clause. If you haven't heard that show, I highly suggest you check it out on your platforms or swing on over to diamondstakejake.podbean.com to hear that show or any of the shows in my vault of archives. Okay. So where was I? Ah, Bob Shaw. So, Bob Shaw, master of the spitter. 40 years after the banning of the pitch, and for years, Gaylord had heard rumors of pitchers doctoring the ball. Hitters and coaches would protest, but for the most part, Gaylord quickly learned that pitchers can pretty much do whatever they want with the ball, provided that no one could prove they were doing it. In fact, hurlers could lick their fingers while standing on the mound as long as it appeared that they wiped them off at some point. Parent would come to the realization that throwing the spitter effectively, one that reads fastball out the window but sinks like a stone in the water, well, that takes skill and practice, and getting away with it 
That's the easy part. The spinner was a hot topic in the 1960s baseball universe. Many were in favor of legalizing the pitch from this morning news to Commissioner Ford Frick and AL President Joe Cronin. As well as the umpires who wanted the rule changed because, you know, quite honestly, they were incapable of policing the pitch and it had become embarrassing. The last legal spitballer, Burley Grimes, the guy we talked about on the Gas House Gang Show, he said before his death, there were more spitball pitchers in the 60s than back when it was legal. Estimates for the amount of pitchers loading up balls ran as high as 50 then. Anytime a pitcher got on a hot streak, whether it was Gibson or Drysdale or Marichal or Sandy, writers and fans would blatantly accuse them of throwing illegal pitches. But folks, Bob Shaw, he was a nefarious provider of saliva, if you know what I'm saying. One day in 1964, Braves manager Bobby Bragan, he's upset with Shaw's, uh, Shaw's performance that day. And he orders the pitcher to throw nothing but spitballs for the last six innings to show that the arms do not care to enforce a roll. In another game at uh, Shide Park, Phil's manager Gene Mock, coaching third base, uh, well, he's the manager. He decided to coach third base to get a better look. And he had the umpires inspect the ball if he even got a whiff of funny business out of Shaw. Gaylord came to camp in 1964, armed with a new slider in his arsenal to augment, you know, that fastball change-up curveball repertoire. Secretly, he and Shaw had been working on a spinner in the offseason as well, and Perry began experimenting with the pitch and batting practice and a few spring training games that year. The first time he ever threw the, an illegal pitch uh, in a Major League Baseball team, according to his book, uh, came against the Mets on May 31st, 1964. It was the second game of a doubleheader that went 23 innings and lasted 7 hours and 23 minutes. Perry, the classic mop-up reliever, he took over for the Giants in the bottom of the 13th in a 6-6 ball game. He had thrown some loaded balls in low-pressure situations, but on this day, uh, he and catcher Bill Holler, they, uh, you know, they decide they're going to go all in with the game on the line. So Gaylord would, uh, Gaylord would go on to pitch the last 10 shutout innings of that ball game for San Francisco uh, to not only earn the victory, but he also he also earned back some of Manager Dark's confidence right there. Armed with this new slider and spitball, Gaylord's, Gaylord's confidence is up, and he begins to assert himself as a major league pitcher, going 12-11 with a 2.75 ERA, while... You know, filling various pitching roles on that staff. Now, it's important to know that Gaylord spent most of his career dying, denying that he ever threw an illegal pitch. When he finally claimed, came clean in his 1974 biography, he also claimed to have cleaned up his act and that his confessions were only related to his sins of the past. However, the accusations against him continued throughout his career and after, and he would almost always deny them in his own way. In fact, he has on occasion indicated that the book itself was just one part of the grand deception. There was easily a hundred of his contemporaries who were accused of loading up baseballs during his era, but none of those guys compared to Perry as far as overall stuff and the control to go with that nasty spitter. And with 
expectations running high. Gaylord again stumbles in 1965 after finally securing a spot in the rotation. Uh, he would lose that job going 8-12 with a bowling shoe ugly 4.19 ERA. To compound his poor pitching issues, he began drawing attention for being like this malcontent who would throw teammates under the bus. And he argued constantly with umpires. He would call them to the press box and demand opponents' hits to be reversed to errors. And for the rest of his career, he would occasionally draw the ire of his teammates, whom he would eviscerate for fielding miscues. Gaylord was never one to tolerate fielding mistakes. In 1966, Gaylord is now in his 27-year-old season. He has 24 career wins, no definitive role on the Giants' staff. Uh, He reported to camp three weeks early, and once again, he had a great spring, leading the Cactus League with a 5-0 spring training record. Gaylord, the farm boy who learned how to plow fields with a mule at seven years old, he always had a tireless work ethic throughout his life and career. But in 66, he turns it up a notch in camp. He even begins like this daily practice regimen that includes playing pepper on days that he's pitching, believing that he pitches better if he's in a full sweat before the game even begins. And let's be honest, it doesn't hurt to be able to hide your grease if you're already lathered in sweat before the game begins as well, right? And on April 23rd, 1966, in the Giants' 11th game, he beat the Strohs 2-1 with a four-hitter. And after that, uh, he was taking the bump every fifth day in the rotation. San Francisco pitching coach Larry uh, Jansen put a lot of hard work and confidence into Gaylord. And he deserves credit, along with Perry, for the Hurlers' newfound course. He broke Gaylord of his three-quarter pitching slot and made him go overhand, which gave his fastball another four miles per hour or so of zip. Perry was now armed with this new overhand slot, two sliders, a cut fastball, a changeup, a curve, and the spitter. All six pitches he can throw in any count with velocity and accuracy. And Gaylord, he takes off like a rocket. Besides a little stint on the DL after jamming his foot in uh, July, sliding into a bag, Perry goes 12-1 with a 2.51 ERA at the break. He makes the All-Star game, and he is the winning pitcher at the new uh, open Bush Field in St. Louis. He pitches two scoreless frames as the NL beat the AL 2-1 when his old friend Murray Wills hit a walk-off single in the 10th. On July 22nd, he abuses filthy, striking out 15 pills, just one shy of the franchise record set by Christy Mathewson back in 1903. By August 20th, the dude is 20-2. and two. He had a little stumble after winning that 20th game. He loses his next six decisions. Some of those games during that stretch, he had some bad luck. But the bottom line is his struggles down the stretch and coincided with the Giants losing the pennant by a game and a half to those goddamn Dodgers. Without him, the Giants would have never been in a position to compete, but when he started to crumble, so did the Giants' ability to keep pace. So, I want to just take a look at those stats from Gaylord's breakthrough 1966 season. Now, remember up to this point, the 27-year-old has been rather mediocre. Albeit, he's, uh, you know, a pitcher with a high ceiling, 
and he's got an unharnessed skill set, right? So before Jansen and Shaw get this here, uh, he's a pitcher with a 24 and 30 record and an ERA in the high fives. In 1966, he goes 21 and 8 with a 2.99 ERA. 255 and two-thirds innings pitched, 201 strikeouts, only 70 walks surrendered. That's a strikeout to walk ratio of 5.1, 5 to 1, folks. Uh, 13 complete games, three shutouts, 2.27 FIP, 124 ERA plus, and a 110 whip. I mean, total beast numbers. And... Despite the late season swoon, 1966 was the breakthrough that had been predicted for Gaylord all along. He trailed only Koufax and teammate Juan Marichal in victories. He finished second to the retired Sandy Koufax for the Sporting News Pitcher of the Year. It was also the first time Perry was accused of loading balls. The first documented complaint came from Braves manager Bobby Bragan, remember that guy, who backed his outfielder Hank Aaron's assertions about Gaylord loading up baseballs. Hit King Pete Rose once said, in a bat versus Gaylord, his bat met a ball out in front of the dish and grease spit, whatever it was. It just splattered everywhere. And to this day, he jokes, he never saw a ball that loaded in his life. He literally had to wipe his face off while he's standing on first base. <laughs> By the mid-60s, the cries for uh, legalizing the spitter, they began to wane because MLB offense was in such decline in the 60s, reaching its lowest levels since the dead ball era years of the 1910s. And side note, it kind of reminds me a couple years ago when all these dudes were blatantly using spider attack and there was like 30 no hitters by the All-Star break. So, now the umpires need to check these dudes every couple of innings, bunch of cheaters. These pitchers have all the advantages advantages in the world over the batter in the first place. And when you load these balls up, especially what the heat pitchers are bringing now, it's almost unhittable. And many of these writers who just a few seasons before said that the spitter was harmless were now blaming it for the death of baseball's offense. There was a shift in thought. And more and more people were calling for the enforcement of the rules to bring balance back in the hitter's direction. Over the next couple of years, Gaylord continues to excel, but he has less success in picking up wins. Which, you know, back in those days, wins were a big deal. Wins were your identity if you were a pitcher. If you don't have wins, you're not doing your job. And, you know, thank God for metrics and the broader knowledge of stats nowadays, you know, that some of you just want to fight against so uh, viciously. Thank God for these new metrics and stats. But I digress. And here is how we look at some of these years in today's analytic perspective. In 1967, despite his 15-17 and 17 record, he finished among the league leaders in RBI, uh, ERA with a 2.61, with a 2.61, 230 strikeouts and 293 innings pitched, 18 con- complete games. He lost five times that year by a score of two to one, which, you know, that sounds very uh, Jacob Degromish. 
The offense didn't help against teams they needed to beat with him on the bump. He lost all five of his starts against the eventual pennant-winning cards, despite posting a minuscule 2.33 ERA versus the Redbirds. On September 1st, he tossed 16 shutout innings versus the Reds and received no decision. So... Despite that 15-17 and 17 record, he was one of the most dominated, dominant pitchers in the NL National League that year. To wrap this up in a bow for UC Meds as a point of reference, his teammate Chris McCormick won the Cy Young that year while pitching fewer, entering, fewer innings and with a higher ERA. But he had that 22-10 and 10 win-loss record. The wins were your identity as a pitcher back in those days. So, following the 1967 season, Major League Baseball had seen enough. They were finally going to enforce the rules, even outlawing the practice of the pitcher putting his hand to his mouth anywhere on the bump. There were implicit directives sent to umpires to call a ball upon any infraction. According to Perry, His strategy changed during that offseason. He could no longer rely on his own, uh, you know, bodily fluids. So the thinking shifted outside the box to using substances like Vaseline and hair tonics. In Gaylord's word, uh, that rule virtually eliminated the spitball pitcher forever. But... He would use the whole winter to figure it out, and it wasn't easy. Prior to the rule change, uh, Perry would touch his hat and his mouth, and with a faint sleight of hand, wiping the fingers on his jersey. Now he had to get that moisture from somewhere else on his body. So, that offseason, he develops a series of (laughs) these elaborate decoy moves to throw off the set and leave everyone especially the hitter guessing. And folks, this is an audio podcast. My words cannot do justice to what I'm explaining to you right now. If you never saw Gaylord Perry and a series of decoys and mannerisms on the mound, I highly suggest you go to your Google machine and find some video. It's mind-boggling. You got to see it, youngins. It will blow your mind. Imagine sitting in the box, in the, in the batter's box, watching these decoys and mannerisms on the mound, and in the back of your mind, you know this cat is loading up balls. Just imagine what that does to a hitter's psyche and confidence. With these new decoys becoming a part of Gaylord's muscle memory, he began to working them into his game. By midsummer, it's obvious a new rule has only made it tougher to figure out how the fuck he's doing it. Gaylord was first searched when Philly's manager Bob Skinner demanded that they search Gaylord's ears, Joe Musgrove style. A month later, Leo DeRocher asked the umps to check his cap and hair. One night, Al Barlick sneaks up behind Gaylord and snatches his hat off his head, exposing Barry's balding head, Perry's balding head, and, you know, that pissed him off. Not so much the accusation, but the fact that he exposed his balding head. <laughs> I know the feeling, Gaylord. 1968, Perry's ERA dips to 2.45 with a 16-15 record. Teammate Juan Marichal finished with a nearly identical ERA of 2.43, but he had a 26-9 record. Again, the Giants, they just don't hit when Perry pitches. The season was the low mark for baseball's offensive decline as the National League ERA was 2.98. 
during the month of July, Gaylord went 2-5 and five with a 1.59 ERA. On September 17th, he threw a one nothing no-hitter versus the Cards in a head-to-head matchup with the great Bob Gibson. Gibson himself, he was he was stellar. He threw a four-hitter that night, but he surrendered a home run to Ron Hunt in the very first inning. Ron Hunt would go on to have two home runs total that year. The game, it only took an hour and 40 minutes to compete. Uh, to complete. And if you like baseball games with no offense, well, then you should have went to the game the very next night because Cards pitcher Ray Washburn, he returned the favor and no-hit San Francisco for the first back-to-back no-hitters in the same series. It was definitely the year of the pitchers. Well, yeah, thank God they didn't have the shit back then or baseball would have been as exciting as watching flies fuck. In 1969, NL President Warren Giles instructed umpires to remove any pitcher they are convinced are loading up balls. Two days later, Doug Harvey threw out several, several balls and checked Gaylord's cap and uniform. He found nothing. A few weeks later, a few weeks later, Ed Sudol made Gaylord pull his pants over his knees to be checked. Nothing. Soon thereafter, another up is wiping his face and the neck with a towel on the mound. Eventually, Giants President Chuck Feeney's had enough. He tells the league office this is truly boarding on harassment and the constant searches well, they begin to slow down. MLB reduced the strike zone and lowered the mound going into the 1969 season, but it had no effect whatsoever on Gaylord's game as he went 19 and 14 with a 2.49 ERA, 26 complete games, and a, and a league leading 323 innings pitched. On July 20th, 1967, Gaylord shows the NL hitters how it's done when he drops Grand Salami Dong all over Dodgers pitcher Claude Austin's lips. Giants manager Al Dark, he once quit. Man will walk on the moon before Gaylord Perry ever hits a home run. And his words would prove to be prophetic as astronaut Neil Armstrong literally stepped onto the moon just minutes before Gaylord dropped dong. Interestingly enough, just to let you know, Gaylord would hit five home runs in his Major League Baseball career. So the next season, he went 23-13 with a slightly higher ERA of 3.20, but the Giants were now hitting for him. He finished strong as his 23 wins led the league, as did his 41 starts and 328 and third innings pitched. He finished second to Bob Gibson and Cy Young voting, and his brother Jim won 24 games for the Twins, making the Perry brothers the first brothers to ever win at least 20 games in the same season. In 1971, he goes 16-12 with a 2.76 ERA. He was involved in a bit of history when Hank Aaron, the first player to publicly complain of Gaylord's nefarious ways, he hits career number, uh, home run number 600 off of him. Uh, Only the second time at that point that Aaron had taken him yard, he would eventually have victimized Gaylord two more times after that number 600 once in the 1972 All-Star Game, and again in 1975 for Hank's first American League home run, the 734th of his career. In October, Perry pitched in his first and only postseason, beating the Pirates in Game 1 of the NLCS, but losing the clincher in Game 4 of the Best of Five series. During the offseason, the Giants trade Perry to the Indians with infielder Frank Duffy. Any stage for pitcher Sam McDowell. 
Many saw this as a good move for San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco was now being seen as an aging team, and they would soon part ways with their legacy vet, uh, legacy vets like Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, and Juan Marichal. And joining the American League, it presented a new cast of protagonists for Gaylord to deal with. As the circus tent that always surrounded his starts, they only seemed to become bigger once he moved to the American League. Mike Epstein of the A's, he waved his bat at Gaylord, threatened physical violence. Uh, Gaylord was literally strip searched on the mound at the behest of A's manager Dick Williams, and he was ordered to change his shirt. Billy Martin once brought a uh, bloodhound dog to, to the park to sniff his balls. Uh, that sounds kind of kinky. In late August, Indians GM, the Hebrew Hammer, Gabe Paul, he protested the treatment of Gaylord to the American League president, Joe Cronin. And through it all, Gaylord's performance on the mound was exceptional. Pitching for a fifth place Indians club that averaged only three runs a game, Perry went 24-16 with a scintillating 1.92 ERA. He was the team's workhorse, tossing 342 and two-thirds innings pitched, and he completed 29 of 41 starts. Eight times he pitched in the extra innings for his offensively challenged team. Now, uh, baseball historian Bill James has said, and when he says something, it carries weight with me. He believes that this is the best season by an American League pitcher since Lefty Grove in 1931. That's pretty impressive. Now, you got, you know, you've had Unit and Pedro since then, but, you know, Bill James is saying right here, best pitching performance by an American League hurler since 1931, Lefty Grove, who was, you know, a beast. So, Gaylord's awarded a Cy Young Award, even though one writer announced he would never vote for Gaylord because of his illegal pitch. But Gaylord would edge Wilbur Wood in voting 64-58 to in the balloting. In June of 1973, Yankees manager Ralph Houck charged the mound and yanked the hat off of Perry's head and kicked it in the dirt. Third base coach Dick Hauser was ejected as well as Houck, and Yankees outfielder Bobby Mercer in a post-game interview challenged the commissioner's office to man up and eliminate the loaded ball. On June 29th that year, ABC TV, Wide World of Sports, old nemesis, former Braves manager Bobby Bragan, he sat down with Howard Cosell and accused Perry of getting the stuff from his armpit. So, a furious Gaylord fires back, claiming that Bragan had probably told him that he had never seen anything suspicious. After a game that year, the league chemically analyzed a batch of balls that Perry used, and they found nothing. So, did he? Or didn't he? Perry relished the controversy. He was now living rent-free in ale hitters' heads. According to his books, he would go games or series of games without loading up. You know, if his sinker or the fork was working, he didn't need the help of grease. In fact, all he needed, really, was a tiny bit of natural sweat to get it done. He continued to go through his elaborate mannerisms and sleight-of-hand feints, uh, rubbing the neck, the ball, the cap, the ball, the glove, the ball. Even if he had zero intentions of loading one up, to him, it was no longer necessary to break out the spitter all the time. Because the batter 
already had it in his head that the ball was loaded. And Gaylord considered that an advantage. Umpire Bill Holler once remarked, I watched Gaylord like a hawk. He never goes to his mouth, and I've never seen him go to a foreign substance. When I up, I check balls. I look at the catcher's glove, and I've never seen anything beyond reproach. You know what I see when I see Gaylord Perry pitch? I see a good curveball, an explosive heater, and a fine sinker. His sinker is no better than Mel Stoudemire's, and no one ever complains about Mel's stuff. Perry is just one hell of a pitcher and competitor. In 1973, Perry finishes 19-19 for the last place try with a 3.38 ERA. After a shutout of the, shutout of the Tigers on August 30th, Detroit manager Billy Martin essentially tells the scribes he ordered his own pitchers to load the ball up for the last two innings. Gaylord Perry is making a mockery of the sport, and nobody has the balls to stop it. He then proceeded to call Commissioner Bowie Kuhn and Joe Cronin uh, gutless cowards. Cronin suspends Billy for three days, but before the suspension is up, the Tigers fire him, and a week later, Billy Martin is managing the Texas Rangers. After the 1973 season, the Indians and Red Sox, they worked out a trade for Perry in which Cleveland will receive pitchers Marty Patton, John Curtis, Greg Scott. Both GMs had agreed in principle, and the Red Sox scheduled a press conference to announce their new pitcher. But the, uh, the tribe's board of directors, they overruled the trade. So the Red Sox pulled a deal off of St. Louis instead, which angered Cleveland, who still believed the deal could be resurrected. In the spring of 74, Perry and Bob Sudik, they released the biography, Me and the Spitter. In the book, he told how he came about the pitch from Bob Shaw and numerous stories of confrontations with angry batters. But he would preface all this by saying, of course, I am a reformed, pure, law-abiding citizen of the United States now. Again, baseball tried to combat the spitter by uh, declaring that the umpire now has the authority to rule a pitch illegally just by looking at it. Okay? The first violation would be a ball. The second violation would result in an ejection. The first time the rule was enforced was on opening day when umpire Marty Springstead called a ball against Gaylord. So, in early May, the tribe front office, they set up a meeting with the umpires in Fenway Park. Uh, they went out to the bully, and they wanted to show that Perry uh, is pitching this new forkball. And the umpires were impressed, and they were satisfied that you know, as sick as that movement is, those balls ain't loaded. AL President Andy McPhail Sr. sent a memo to all the league umpires saying, that Gaylord Fork behaves exactly like a loaded ball. After the opening day loss, Perry embarked on the greatest stretch of pitching in his illustrious career, winning the next 15 straight decisions over 17 starts and running his record to 15-1 with a 1.31 ERA by July 3rd. All 15 of those wins were complete games. I say again, all of those 15 wins were complete games. In fact, uh, Gaylord was one shy of tying the record for consecutive victories facing the A's, but he gave up a run in the ninth to tie the score. He gave up a run in the 10th frame to lose it. 
And if you listen to the soundbite in the beginning, Gaylord is telling David Letterman that he didn't load up one baseball during that 15-game winning streak. And the 16th game, he did load it, and the baseball gods frowned on it, and he lost. He returned to earth in the second half, but he still finished with a 21-13 record and a 2.51 ERA for the fourth-place Indians. Uh, Perry was still a prick uh, if his defense failed him. And he would regularly complain about young center fielder George Hendrick. At some point, he'd tell his manager, Bob Aspermonte, that he don't want Hendrick playing behind him anymore. And Aspermonte actually obliged us for the next few games he started. And when they both eventually found their names on the same lineup card a few weeks later, Hendricks refused to play, and he left the park. On September 12th, the Tribes traded for Angels 38-year-old slugger Frank Robinson. Although Robbie dropped 20 bombs in Anaheim the year before, his superstar days were well behind him, and the rumor was he was going to be the team's new manager. Well, Perry becomes fixated on Robinson's salary of $173,500, and Gaylord tells the Cleveland Scribes that when his current deal runs up, he's going to ask for one more dollar than Frank. Now, folks, Frank is a prideful man, and he didn't take kindly to Gaylord's words there. So he confronts Perry, and the two, they got to be separated by teammates as a fist fight nearly breaks out. And Gaylord makes it known, if Frank Robinson is named the manager, then I don't want to be on his team. Trade me. Well, Frank was named the manager, and it was a big deal as he became the first black man to manage a team in the major leagues. Unfortunately, he begins his career uh, in crisis as his only star player is publicly feuding with him. There was a public truce during that offseason, but the trade rumors are swirling in from Lake Erie as the Red Sox again tried to secure Gaylord's services in earnest. In spring training, the truce dissolved, as Gaylord objected to Frank's exercise regimen. Perry was always used to having special privileges, but anyone who has, uh, you know, ever been around Frank, and I have, uh, you quickly realize that ain't Frank's way. Even as a superstar for the Orioles, Frank never put himself above his teammates, except when he was a judge in the Orioles' kangaroo courts. And he wasn't going to change his philosophy for a star pitcher. And things went along these lines throughout the season. Gaylord objected to all the running Frank was expecting out of him. And he said, look, man, I'm not a marathon trainer, and I'm not about to let some superstar who has never pitched a day in his life tell me how to get ready to pitch. And Perry's departure became a foregone conclusion. And the feud took some of the luster away from Frank's historical manager, managerial debut. Gaylord struggles for the Tribe in 75, going 6-9 with a 3.55 ERA into mid-June. On June 13, 13th, he gets dealt to the Rangers for Jim Bibby, Jackie Brown, Rick Watts, and $150,000 in cash. Ironically, his new manager was Billy Martin. Now, all of a sudden, Billy's got a change of perspective and heart. He's exclaiming that Gaylord Perry is a fine, upstanding citizen, and I was wrong. He's never done anything illegal. Boy, he goes 12-8 with a 3.03 ERA for the Rangers. Their uh, best pitcher by far, and he's still up to his workhorse profile with 300 innings combined between Texas and Cleveland. By the end of the season, Billy Martin was fired and then hired by George Steinbrenner in New York. 
and uh, with the Yankees, where he was once again free to to uh, you know lead this crusade against Perry and his dastardly pitch. The next season, the 30-year-old vet went 15-14 with a 3.24 ERA. After that 1976 season, many baseball pundits were surprised that Gaylord wasn't exposed to the expansion draft as the Mariners and Blue Jays were being welcomed into the American League fraternity. Rangers owner Brad Corbett, he explained that Gaylord's value to the team, you know, it's more than just a pincher. In 1977, the team rewards their owner with a surprising second-place finish on a Rangers team starting rotation of Gaylord, Burt Blylevin, Doyle Alexander, and Doc Ellis. In February of 1978, the Rangers trade pairing to the Padres for Dave Tomlin and 125 grand. And like the tribe three years before, the Rangers needed cash, which included the savings off of uh, Gaylord's $200,000 contract. The Friars, on the other hand, they need a veteran hand to stabilize their staff, and Gaylord delivered, going 21 and 6 with a 2.73 ERA as the Padres finished 84 and 78, their best record in their 10 year existence. He won a second Cy Young Award, becoming the first player to accomplish the feat in both leagues, and he became just the third hurler to win 20 games with three different teams, uh, joining Pete Alexander and that uh, Carl Mays dude that I spoke of earlier. In 1979, he has another solid campaign. He goes 12 and 11 with a 3.06 ERA, but at some point, he becomes disillusioned with the direction of the team, and he begins to publicly feud with manager Roger Craig and GM Bob Fontaine. In August, Rangers owner Brad Corbett says the biggest mistake he ever made was trading Gaylord. He then promises Perry a front office position at the end of his career. And he also borders on tampering when he publicly acknowledges that, you know, he wants Gaylord back. In late August, Perry tells the pods he wants out. He wants to go, you know, preferably back to Arlington, Texas. And on September 4th, he pushes the envelope even further by quitting on the team and saying he would retire if a deal couldn't be worked out. Now, San Diego, of course, is pissed off, especially since Gaylord had recently extended his deal with the club through the 1980 season. And after a few months of failing to get him to the return to the team, they reluctantly had to deal him back to the Rangers in February of 1980. The return to Texas it did not prove to be a cure for Gaylord. In June, manager Pat Corrales he warned Gaylord to stop publicly criticizing his teammates. A few weeks later, he laid into the right-hander for storming off the mound after a dismal outing. He had the best ERA on the staff, at 3.43, but he only managed to go 6-9 and in 24 starts. On August 24th, he was dealt to the Yankees, putting him in his first pennant race since 1971. He went 4-4 with New York, but he never saw the mound in the three-game sweep at the hands of the Royals in the ALCS. At the end of the season, the Yankees released the 42-year-old pitcher. Now sitting 11 wins shy of 300, he signs with the Braves in January of 81. He finished the season 8-9, and nine, and he likely missed out on his milestone win because of the player strike that shut the game down for seven weeks that summer. After the Braves let him go, he spent the winter looking for a job, and in March of 1982, he signs with the Seattle Mariners. He begins the 1982 season with two consecutive game losses, 
And then he won two straight to get to 299 wins. On May 6th, he hurls a complete game, 7-3 victory over the New York Yankees for that historic 300th win. And with that 300th win, he became the first pitcher since early win in 1963 to reach that plateau. Pitching for a mediocre team, Perry finished 10-12 and with a 4.40 ERA and 32 starts and 216 and two-thirds innings pitched. On August 23rd, plate umpire Dave Phillips, he issued a warning and then ejected Perry for throwing two illegal pitches in his determination. It was the first and only time the 44-year-old Perry would be ejected from a game for his infamous pitch. The umpire didn't examine the ball before forming his conclusion. And to his last day, Perry denied any wrongdoing that day, but the American League fined him $250 and suspended him for 10 games. Perry would wind his career up in 1983, going 3-10 with the Mariners uh, before they released him, the Kansas City Royals would pick up his contract, and he went 4-4 four four with Kansas City. Ironically, as baseball's outlaw, he would be a witness and participant in one of baseball's crazier moments. On August 14, 1983, George Brett hit the Pine Tar Blast. Almost all seam heads know the story. Brett hits a bomb. Billy Martin... Protests to the umps that his home run is invalid because he used too much pine tar. The umps wind up agreeing, and they call Brett out, who has already circled the bases and is now sitting with his teammates in the dugout. So, Brett goes postal, and all hell breaks out, right? That's pretty much the story. All of us teammates know it, right? What many people do not know about that moment is during the chaotic aftermath of such a call, Gaylord ran on the field, confiscated the bat, and took off running. Eventually, he was chased down by stadium security, he relinquished the lumber, and he was promptly kicked out of the game. Crazy stuff. I had no idea. At the end of 1983, Perry retires from baseball with 314 wins, which was 11th most at that time. Uh, his 3,534 career strikeouts, they placed him third all time when he retired. Uh, due to his controversy and his playing career, it took Perry three times before getting into the Hall of Fame in 1991. He and uh, his brother Jim, they are the second most winningest brothers with 529 combined victories, behind only the Negroes, Phil and Joe, who have 10 more at 539. His post-career has had some ups and some devastating downs. His 400-acre farm foreclosed in 1986. In September of 1987, his beloved wife, his high school sweetheart, she died in a car accident at the young age of 46. A few years later, he would remarry Carol Caggiano, but that would end in divorce, and he would marry a third time to Deborah White, who would survive him after his death. In the ensuing years, Gaylord Perry, you know, pretty much made his living by just being himself, traveling the country, signing autographs, uh, telling stories, and appearing at ball games. He was making a pretty comfortable living, and the MLB pension kicked in when he turned 65 in 2003. Uh, magician never tells his tricks, and folks... Gaylord Perry was probably the best musician that, you know, we ever saw in the history of baseball. Uh, wherever he went, it was the same old questions. How'd you do it? Where'd you hide it? How often did you use it? 
they almost scripted um, daily routine of questions were always met with like this coy smile and a weak denial. And not even two weeks ago, 13 days ago, 12 days ago, we lost this baseball icon when he died of a natural causes on December 1st, 2022 at 5 o'clock in the morning at his home in Gaffney, South Carolina at the age of 84. Uh, his daughter Allison said while confirming the death that Gaylord had contracted the coronavirus last year and he never fully recovered from it. Um, and that, of course, is the same Allison who at five years old vociferously protected her father by saying he throws a hard slider. And folks... That is the story of the late, great Gaylord Perry. Rest in peace, Godspeed, and time will not dim the glory of your deeds. Before I bounce, let's take a look at those Hall of Fame numbers, career numbers by the great Gaylord Perry. Let's see here. 22-year baseball career with the Giants, Rangers, Indians, Padres, Mariners, Royals, Braves, and Yankees. A career wins above replacement of 90. 314 wins, 265 losses, and a 3.11 ERA. 770 games pitched. 690 of those were starts. Now, folks, I want you to pay attention. I want you to listen to this stat. I don't want you to miss it. 303 complete games. Yeah, that's right. He almost had as many complete games as he had wins. You heard what I said. 303, folks. In 1972 and 1973, he led the American League with 29 complete games in back-to-back seasons. I mean, that's just amazing. 303 complete games. He pitched 53 career shutouts, and he even has 10 saves to boot. He was a workhouse. 5,350 innings pitched, 3,534 strikeouts, and 21,953 batters faced in his career. A 117 ERA plus, and a 1.18 whip. Two Cy Youngs, 1972 and 1978. He's inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1991 with 77.2% of the vote. Five All-Star appearances. Two-time NL Player of the Month, June of 66. September of 78. One-time AL Player of the Month, June of 74. And three-time NL Player of the Week. Just sick, sick Numbers. I mean, 303 complete games. Forget about it. I think that's why I'm going to wrap it up. I've always a big, been a big fan of Gaylord, but I never really knew a story, so I'm glad to have it in the collection now. And, and you know, I, I'm curious. What do you guys think? Gaylord says he went clean after the rule change in 68. And I do think it's weird that we just kind of accept Gaylord's coy behavior, it's almost looked upon as, you know, this cute old man. When addressing this topic, but but baseball fans are quick to crush batters whenever they're looking for an edge. Uh, while I'm doing the research on this, I had real thoughts about spitters, spider tack, even the shift. 
It almost feels like baseball and their fans, they always do their best to stifle the offense. And I'm curious to know how you guys feel. We let spitballers in the hall, but not Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens. Let, let me ask you something. If Roger Clemens had thrown a spitter instead of using PEDs, uh, would he be in the hall right now? I, I really want to know your opinion. I, I also truly believe, and maybe I'm naive, I believe Gaylord didn't throw the spitter as much as people like to romanticize about it. I think in the beginning when he was struggling to make the Giants roster, uh, he did what he had to do to hold on to a spot on the roster. I think that might have been the same as he's, you know, pitching into his 40s. He might have used a little more down the stretch there. But I think as he matured and his arsenal expands, I believe he needed a less and less. And the fact that hitters were on tilt because of all the decoys, well, you know, that was just an advantage, uh, you know, much bigger than his spitter. And man, what a fascinating dude. I really enjoyed the research. I know this one went a little long, but I wanted to pay my respects to this legend. You feel me? I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I love bringing it to you. And there are all kinds of videos and articles out there. Do yourself a favor. Check some of that stuff out. And look, another show down in this quickly evaporating 2022 season. Only two more shows to go before Backwards K-Pod dives into 2023. And with the Gaylord Perry show in the books, I now fix my gaze upon next week's show. Next week, I'm going to be talking about, in my opinion, the funniest man in baseball today, Mr. Bob Euchre. And I can't wait to learn this guy's story, as I'm a huge fan of the Brewers broadcaster. Probably the worst ball player we'll ever highlight here at Backwards K-Pod, but my God, the humor and the wit, it's as Hall of Fame as it comes. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored to tears, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand said in our one-on-one interview, yeah, you can find that in the archives, by the way. I just cracked up when he said it to me. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, Seamheads. Peace. Oh. <sighs>